You can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I'm reminded of on that, uh, we call it Palm Sunday. It was probably more correctly Palm Monday. It probably happened on Monday, not Sunday. But uh, we're reminded that as all these people flocked to see the Messiah, Christ, this man from Nazareth riding in to Jerusalem. And uh, it was such a celebration. I mean, it was the week of the Passover. Uh, There was multiple millions of people there. And uh, the Bible tells us that the crowds were just pressing in as he rode in and, and they were laying down palm branches and um, to kind of pave the way. And they were uh, shouting Hosanna, which means the Lord saves, save now. And yet this same group of people who was so on Jesus' side at this point in time, a few days later, as I mentioned before, Uh, was willing to um, not just uh, accuse him falsely and not just to uh, sentence him, to allow him to be sentenced to crucifixion, but also they traded him for a a thief, someone who was um, a criminal. Uh, And yet this was the Son of God who did nothing wrong ever. And uh, we're going to find out on Good Friday a little bit about how um, and what happened at the cross. So I encourage you to come out for that. But as we read Romans chapter 6, I'm just going to read verses 5 through 11 this morning. I'll try to get through these. Um, Or actually, verses 6 through 11, excuse me. And so it says in Romans uh, chapter 6... Romans chapter 6, verse 5 through 11. For if we have been united with Him... In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. John MacArthur uses an illustration of John Newton um, in his commentary. And I just want to read part of that for you because it's, it, it speaks. Last week we looked at the life of Paul who used to be Saul, and how it was so radically changed. But John Newton ran away to sea early in his life, and finally he arrived in Africa. And in a reversal of normal rules, he was actually sold as a slave to a Negro woman. And he sank so low that he lived on the crumbs from her table, 
And his biographer tells us that he ate wild yams, which he dug up at night. His clothing was reduced to a single shirt, which he periodically washed in the ocean. He finally escaped his slavery situation, and he went to the natives, and he accepted their base kind of life. It doesn't seem possible for a civilized, educated man to have sunk to the level that John Newton did, but the power of God was laid hold on him in that situation through a certain missionary in Africa. And he became a sea captain. Later on in his life, he became a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wrote many of the marvelous hymns that we sing. Soon he became the pastor of a church in London. And there is still the epitaph in the churchyard where John Newton was the pastor. An epitaph which he wrote himself. And it says this, Sacred to the memory of John Newton, once a libertine and a blasphemer and slave of slaves in Africa, but renewed, purified, pardoned, and appointed to preach the gospel which he had labored so hard to destroy. And the question is this, can a person be a Christian and go on living in the same relationship to sin that he had before. Now, we looked at this last week a little bit, and we didn't really get into our outline. This week, we'll get into our outline, I promise you. Um, But the question is, does salvation change you? When people are saved, when people are born again, is there a change in their life? Or do they just go on living in sin? Some people believe that salvation is just a simple kind of a spiritual transaction that happens somehow. And God just, uh, you know, writes down your name and, yeah, declares you righteous, and, and that's it. But it doesn't have any effect on you. And so the question is, does salvation really change you? Or can you can go on living in the same relationship to sin that you did before you were saved? In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever commits sin, whoever goes on committing sin is the idea, whoever's life pattern is one of sin, is sin's servant, is a servant of sin. Are you as a Christian, still the servant of sin? Are you in the same relationship to sin that you were before? Now, as you look at Romans chapter 16, you're going to see the answer down in verse 18. It says, Having been set free from sin, we became slaves of what? What's it say? Righteousness. Being made free from sin, we became servants of righteousness or slaves of righteousness. In salvation, this bondage to sin changed. We were bound to sin before we became a Christian, before we came to Christ. We were bound to sin. We couldn't do any good. We could only do Sinful things. Our good works were looked upon as filthy rags, the Bible says. But now in salvation, 
the bondage changes. It changes from being bound to sin to being bound to who? Bound to Christ. Bound to righteousness. From having this slavery to sin, pattern of sin in your life continually, as an unbeliever, as someone who's unregenerate, the Bible says you're now transformed into one who responds to righteousness. It speaks in terms of you've died to sin. 1 John says that we have overcome the world. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are delivered from the bondage of Satan. It tells us that we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We were under the control of the prince of the power of the air. We were under control of the ruler of darkness in this world. But because we became a Christian, because we put our faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says that God has declared us righteous, we're justified. But not only that, we've come into a new dimension. We have a new life. It's a, it's a, it's a brand new you, you might say. Now, what we're going to be talking about today, and and hear me on this, you have to be patient as we go through Romans, because we'll get to the practical, we'll get to the, the part where it talks about us sinning daily and all that. We're going to get there. But today we're basically talking about principles. We're talking about spiritual truth. We're not talking about it in relation to our acts of sin that we may do daily. We'll get to that. Paul will address that. But here it's in relation to the sin principle as a ruling, dominating power in your life. Because there's, there's two powers that everyone is fallen to. One of the other. Uh, you can see that in verse 21 of chapter 5. It says, sin reigned in death. That's one, one power. The power of darkness, the power of Satan, the power of sin, the power that, w- that was ours when we were in Adam. But then it also says, grace also might reign through what? Righteousness, leading to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have two monarchs. The first one is sin. The second one is Grace. The first one is Satan. The second one is Christ. The first one is unrighteousness, sinful living. The second one is righteous, holy living. And everybody in the world is under one of those two dominions or kingdoms. You can't be in both at the same time. You're either dominated by sin or you're dominated by God's grace. It's got to be one or the other. It's either... Sin that directs your life on a daily basis. Or it's grace that works out righteousness in your life on a daily basis. What's the result of sin? Death. What's the result of grace? Righteous. Righteousness. And so when you were lost, when you were in Adam, before you knew Christ, before you had a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ... 
the dominating thing in your life was sin. And once you're saved, all of a sudden, that domination changes to a new, 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 new place. And that place is the grace of God. Which is righteousness in life. So when it says there in verse 2, Romans 6, How can we who died to sin... It means we have died to the reign of sin. We have died to the domination of sin. Where is our citizenship as believers? It's in heaven. We have a new master. It says in verse 14 of Romans 6, For sin will have what? No dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. So, when a person is saved, there's a very incredibly powerful and, and even we can't understand it, transaction, a transformation that happens. And it happens at the legal level. God declares you righteous, even though you're not. He declares you righteous. But there's also a transformation that follows that. It's not just the divine transaction. God declares us righteous. Now we can just continue on in our life of sin. No. He says that there's a transformation that takes place. That somehow we've been taken out of the dominion of sin. And we've been placed in the dominion of God's grace. Which leads to a righteous life. In verse 3 of chapter 6. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's not talking about water baptism, even though water baptism is a symbol of the inward change that we have. And we encourage believers to follow Christ in water baptism. It's a, it's a picture of what has happened to you in your own life that you were that you were. Uh, buried and you're raised to the newness of life in Christ, that you've left your old life behind. Baptism does not save you. Water baptism does not save you. He's not talking about water baptism here. He's talking about that spiritual baptism that happens when we are saved. The moment we put our faith and trust in Christ, God baptizes us in Christ. He immerses us in Christ. And we looked at that in previous messages, being our unity, that divine unity that we have with Christ. But we also saw that even though we're identified with Christ through baptism, we're also identified in Christ in his death and resurrection. It says in verse 3 that we are baptized in his death. Look at verse 4. It says, There were buried with him by baptism into death, that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in the newness of life. For we have been grown together in the likeness of his death. And we talked about how that word means that... the. The phrase there, likeness of his death, is very important. We did not physically die like Jesus died. But we died in the likeness of his death, spiritually. 
and we reap the benefits of his death. We are identified with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, even though we actually didn't die and we actually didn't rise from the dead, we bear all the benefits of what Christ went through. And you have to understand, the moment you came to Christ, the moment you believed that He was the only way for your salvation, and you cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and God saved you. You died. You died. Your old life is dead. And the Bible says that we rose with Christ to walk in newness of life. That's a miracle. And he makes a point of Christ being buried. He doesn't just say he died. No, he said he was buried. Last time I checked, you don't bury living people. When you go to a funeral and you're at the graveside and they're putting the casket in and and they're putting them down in the ground. I remember I was at a funeral one time. I didn't do the funeral, but I was there attending. And I remember parents being rather distraught at this and the Christians. And they said, God, we know that you could raise our son even at this point. And I was standing there going, well, God could do it, but I'm not holding out any hope here. I don't think it's going to happen. And when they put that casket down, they put the dirt on top and people left, he was dead. That's the same idea here. That when Christ was buried, that was a sign that he was dead. It's a proof of death. It was an affirmation that he was truly dead. That's why they left him there for several days. Three days to make sure. That nobody could say, oh, he was just asleep. Yeah, not for three days. Same thing with Lazarus. Remember that? By the time they got to the grave, they said, oh, man, don't open that that thing, man. He's going to stink. Why? Rotting flesh. Why? Because he was there so long. Same thing with Christ. Well, what is this saying to us? It's saying that there's no old you around. There's no old you around. There's no old nature around. Now, some people have a hard time with this because maybe as I have been taught, I was taught early in my Christian life, well, you have the new nature, you have the new you, new you and you have the old you. Who are you going to listen to? You ever been taught that? I've heard that before. There's an old nature and a new nature. So when we sin, we can just say, well, that's our old nature. I gave in to the old nature. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says the old you is dead. It's dead. It's buried. And a lot of people want to use that kind of, you know, tension there between the old and the new. And they kind of, it's almost like they're schizophrenic Christians running around. Who am I going to listen to today? Oh, I don't know. You know that's not how God has created us. That's not what salvation is about. That would not give me joy to realize that I still had a power within me that somehow would lead me down a sinful path and that could reign in my life. That's not salvation. That would give you a headache. But that's the theology that's out there. 
But I'm just here to tell you there's no old you left. You were so, the old you when you came to Christ was so dead that it was buried. That's why he says you were buried. You think of Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. We know this verse well. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I who? The old you. Why? Because he's dead. That's what Paul is saying. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the new you who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Christ in us. That's the new you. Now, remember, we're not dealing with experience. We're dealing with spiritual facts. And there's a big difference. We're not dealing with practical things yet. We're still dealing with the principle of sin not having a dominion in our life. We're going to get to the the practical things. We're going to get to, well, why do we still sin? We're going to talk about that eventually. But we're, we're dealing here with a, a fact that a lot of Christians don't understand. That because we've been redeemed, because we've been saved, it's important to understand that we have died to sin. How? Because we were buried in His death, and then we were risen to walk in the newness of life. That's what the Bible says. So here's his flow of thought here. In in verse 4, he pictures this baptism as about our spiritual union with Christ, which we've talked about. And then verse 5 kind of explains verse 4. Because he starts out there, if we've become united with Christ, we've been baptized, brought together with Christ in the likeness of his death, then we'll also have the likeness of his resurrection. So when you read verse 5, verse 6 and 7 explains the first half of verse 5, where it talks about that we have become united with Christ in his death, that we're no longer slaves to sin. That's what verse 6 and 7 is talking about, that first half of verse 5. The second half of verse 5, where it's talking about uh, being being united to Christ in his resurrection there. That's what verses 8 to 10 explain. And so when you stop and you you think about this, verse 11 then just applies those truths. Because of these truths, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ's death and resurrection not only paid, remember, the penalty for our sin, but it also provided the power that we need to overcome sin. And so Paul's idea is this, and this is in your outline, and this is where we're going to start kind of through the flow here. Living in light of our union with Christ is the key to overcoming sin. Living in light of your union with Christ is the key to overcoming sin. You have to understand that fundamental truth, or your Christian life is going to be a mess. And when you don't take it theologically the way we're going to talk about it here, it almost allows you an out to kind of live whatever life you want to. 
Because, well, after all, God's grace. You know, it falls back to the same argument. What, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, if God saved me, then I'm just going to go sin it up. Because the more I sin, the more grace He gives me. And the more grace He gives me, the more He's glorified. That makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense. To put it another way, don't live in sin as you used to live because you aren't the same person you used to be. If you're claiming to be saved, if you're claiming to be born again, you are not the same person that you were in Adam. That old self is gone. It's dead. It's buried. There's a new you. Before you were in the dominion of Adam, in the dominion of sin, now you're in the dominion of Christ, in the dominion of righteousness. In Adam you were dead in sin. In Christ, you could say you're dead to sin and alive to God. Very important truth. So the first point here in your outline, to overcome sin, we have to know that you are totally identified with Christ in the likeness of his death. That you are totally identified with Christ in the likeness of his death. In the first part of verse 5 there, it says, For if or since, it's a clause there, you can, you can translate it either way. It should really be since. For since we have been united with him. It's like in, in 1 John 1, nine, where it says, If we confess our sins. Really, it should be since we confess our sins. Why wouldn't we confess our sins? God isn't up there with a big hammer ready to hit us every time we sin. No, he's up there with his grace reaching out, saying, yeah, come to me if you've sinned as one of my children, and, and your, my forgiveness is there. So it's, for since we have been united with him in a death like his. Now, verse 6 and 7 go on and explain what that means. In verse 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would be no longer be enslaved to sin. Look at how that verse starts off in verse 6. What's the word? We what? Know. We know. This is not something that's left up to question. We're completely united with Christ in the likeness of his death. When we trusted Christ as our Savior, we were united with him. And we know it without a shadow of a doubt. He's not talking about knowledge of what we gain by experience. He's talking about knowledge that God has revealed this to us. This is a spiritual fact. This is something that you need to know. Now, practically, we'll address that. But this is what Paul is saying. Sometimes you may not feel crucified with Christ. You may feel, boy, sin is just rampant in your life. This is something that you have to believe. An older commentary says this, the word exactly expresses here that word united, for we have been united with him has the idea of being joined together. 
but he says it expresses the process by which a graft becomes united with the life of a tree. Some of you have trees in your backyard. Some of you are trying to grow, you know, maybe certain trees or whatever. I know that we had, used to have a, a gentleman in our church, Jerry Sheevy, and he would graft his fruit trees together, and he'd have plum trees growing off of whatever. I mean, it was really weird, but it worked, and it was amazing how it worked. And that's the idea here. It actually becomes part of the tree. It points to our organic living union with Christ that we share in his death and in his resurrection. So in the first half of verse 5, the focus is not on sharing his life, but rather sharing his death. And so it's said in verse 4 that we had died with him. In verse 3 and 4, when Christ died, we died in him. And in verse 5, when it says that this is an action that has happened, it's, 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 it's good to understand that this is part of the, the perfect tense in the original language, which means it was a past action, but it has ongoing results. It's something that happened way back here, but you know what? It, the results of it are still felt today. And he says that we are like in the likeness of his death. It's important that we, we understand this. Secondly, this union with Christ means that our unregenerated life is over so that we do not now need to obey our old nature. He says in verse 6, our old self was crucified with him that our, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Might be brought to nothing, the ESV says. And this is where it gets a little confusing because, as I said earlier, a lot of people think that there's an old man and a new man and they both exist within you. And it's up to you to who you're going to listen to. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible teaches And we're going to go through some of these texts. But the first question we have to ask ourselves is simply this. What is the old self? When the Bible talks about the old self, well, what does it mean? What is it referring to? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 22. Ephesians 4, verse 22. We ask the question, what is the old man? Look at what it says in verse 22. To put off your old self. Well, what is it? Paul, are you going to tell us what it is? What is the old self? Which belongs to your what? What's it say? Former manner of life. And is corrupt through the deceitful desires. So what is the old man? What does Paul say? It's the former manner of life. It's the way you lived before you became a Christian. Well, what kind of life was that? It tells us that it was corrupt. We were old. We were corrupt. We were unregenerate before we came to Christ. You jump down to verse 24 there, the same... Chapter, Ephesians 4, 
He contrasts that with the new self. Well, what's the new self? It's that which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what happens when we become a Christian. So ask yourself, what are you? (laughs) Are you some old man and new man constantly in battle, fighting with each other? Some schizophrenic Christian that walks around not knowing, boy, who am I going to listen to today? That's not what the Bible teaches. You don't see that in Scripture. Are you the old man? Or are you the new man? Can't be both. You can't be both. You can't be dead and alive. It's impossible. The Bible says that you have put off the old man. That you have put on the new man. I think that it's so important that we realize when Scripture says the old man was corrupt according to deceitful lust, it says your former manner of life, and then all of a sudden this new one is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's who we are in Christ. To put it in the terms of Paul in Corinthians, he says, if any man be in Christ, he is what? New creation, a new creature. Now, in verse 22 of Ephesians, there where it says that we are to put off the old self, I remember being taught that that's a, that's a command. That's something we have to do every day as Christians. We get up and God commands us to put off that old self, you know, and then put on the new self. That seems kind of fickle, doesn't it? What if you get up and you don't want to put on the new self and you want to leave the old self on? I mean, it's, it just seems kind of weird thinking. But it kind, of, it, it kind of fits logically in our minds. Well, yeah, we have to put on. It's up to us. It's not up to us. Because the old self isn't there anymore. It's dead, the Bible says. It's buried. I mean, if you can get this, grasp this, you'll have such a clear understanding of what it means when God calls us to live a life of holiness and righteousness. I mean, if that weren't true, man, I'd just give up. If I was constantly, if it was left up to me, whether, boy, I'm going to listen to my old self or my new self, I'll tell you right now, probably 90% of the time, I'm going the old, old way. That's just reality. And any one of us would do the exact same thing. Thank God he doesn't leave that up to us. That he says the old self isn't even around. It's dead. It's gone. So he tells us here that you Christians understand that that old self was put off. You know, it's it's not a command. It's basically telling us the result of what Christ did for us. Because God would not tell us to do something that was impossible. If somebody you know died, and you had the funeral, 
and they're long since buried. And a year later, I say, hey, why don't you call up Joe and let's go to lunch? You'd look at me and go, oh, you mean Joe Williams? Just a name. Yeah, well, he died a year ago. Yeah, just call him up. We'll go to lunch. You'd go, what? Are you, have you lost your mind? Why would you say such a thing? That's what Paul is getting at. Why would we continue in sin when it has no dominion over us because the old self doesn't even exist? Romans 6 tells us the old self was dead. And it fits very well into this understanding of Ephesians chapter 4. To put off, it's the infinitive there in verse 24. Same thing, to put on. John Murray calls the infinitives of results. He translates it this way. So that you put off according to the former manner of life the old man. Martin Lloyd-Jones translates it this way. Do not go on living as you were still Do not go on living as if you were still that old man because the old man has died. Do not go on living as if he was still there because he's not. That's Paul's point. He's saying there, you in in, in Ephesians 4.20 have not so learned Christ. You didn't learn Christ to continue in your sin. You didn't come to Christ so that you could just continue to sin. Paul's answer to that is, may it never be. No, 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 no. That's not the answer. You put off the old manner of life, the old man, and you put on the new man. Because now you're in Christ. Look over at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Colossians and Ephesians are almost parallel books. If you read one, you'll get the other. If you read the other, you'll get the one. They're almost parallel. But in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, look at what it says. Do not lie to one another. Why? Why shouldn't we lie to one another, Paul? Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to Christians. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have what? Put off the old self. With its practices. And have put on, verse 10 says, the new self. Which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. That's a statement of definition about what a Christian is. He's saying, since you've done this. Now go back to Romans 6. It's exactly what he's saying in Romans 6. Six, we know that our old self was crucified. How do we know that, Paul? Because it was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we'd be no longer enslaved to sin. John MacArthur brings out an interesting fact about this word old. There's two words in the Greek language for old are chaos and paleos. Archaos, we get archaic, right? Uh, Archaos means this, old in point of time. 
That's not what he uses here. He used paleos, which means old in point of use. So this old self, this old man, means he's old in the sense that he's worn out. He's useless. He's fit for the dump. He's to be discarded. You know, we had a TV over in the fellowship hall. We had to get rid of it. So I put it out in front of the fellowship hall, praying that someone would pick it up so I wouldn't have to pay money to take it to the dump. We called, nobody came. (laughs) So I called 1-800-JUNK. And they said, oh, we'll come and pick it up for $180 or $150 or whatever it was. I said, ah, thank you very much. So I continued to look at this stupid TV sitting outside on Euclid there in front of the, the fellowship hall thinking, I wonder what the neighbors are thinking. So I kind of wheeled it back closer to the fellowship doors there thinking, well, it's not so obvious. It's sitting right on the street. I even had some kids come by last week, and they were messing around with it and looking at it. I'm like, ah, maybe they'll push it down. I don't know what they're going to do with it, but just get rid of it. They didn't take it. Finally, I was in the fellowship hall putting the little electrical receptacles in there yesterday, and I hear this little on the fellowship hall door, and I'm thinking, knocking on the door. So I go over, and it's this gentleman. I opened the door, and he spoke very heavy Spanish. I couldn't really understand what he was saying. And he's pointing to the TV, and He's like, free? I'm like, yeah, 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 free. You want it? You want it? You want the TV? It works, but, you know, it's not HD or nothing. I mean, you know, it's kind of, you know, spotty on the, on the image and stuff. But if you want it, he goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he kept on saying, write down the name of the, like, who owned it. And I finally figured out what he was saying was, look, I, I go around and pick up stuff like this, and I'll take it to a, a junkyard wherever and get money for it, obviously. But and when I do that, they're going to ask me, well, where'd you get this? Did you steal this? So he wanted, you know, so I gave him my card. And he's like, oh, thank you. I said, you're going to take it right now? And he's like, oh, I got the van. I'm like, great, man. Let's, I'll, I'll help you load it up, pal. So he opened the van, and he's got all this junk in there. And I'm like, this isn't going to fit. Well, he, his wife was in the front seat. She kept on pulling stuff forward. And finally, we got this TV over there. And we both shoved it in there and pushed, 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 got shut the doors. And I said, man, thank you very much. I go, you know what? Let me get my cards on there. Email me. Because we may have some other stuff that we want to get rid of. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back. I said, oh, good. But it's gone. It's useless. It's no good. We can't go over there and, and turn it on anymore. Why? Because it's not there. It's the same thing with the old self. What is the old man? It's the unregenerated nature. It's what described is the Adam man. In verse 12 of chapter 5, as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Adam was that identifier. Being in Adam means that you are in sin. Being in Christ means that you are in God's grace, that you are righteous. So the old man, the Adamic nature, the unregenerate nature, the old self, the old nature, whatever term you like, it's gone. It's dead if you are in Christ. Paul says, I I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not the old me, the new me. I live. But not I. See, it's, it's very important that we understand that. And what Paul is insisting here is that a person in Christ is justified. 
He's made righteous before God. And when that person is redeemed, there's a break with that old man. He's gone. He's dead. Some people teach that somehow this is a process. It's not a process. It's gone. If you're buried, you're not in the, in the midst of dying, I hope. I mean, that wouldn't make sense. Well, Paul, poor, poor grandpa, you know, he's, he's not feeling too well. He's kind of sick. He looks like he's dying. Let's just bury him now and get it over with. You would never do that. Okay? You bury somebody when they're dead. There's no hope of life. That's the point. It's an already completed reality. And to suppose that the old man, that this old man has been crucified and still lives on somehow, it's contradicting everything that Paul's saying here. He's been crucified, he's not in the process of being crucified. I hear Christians even say this, I'm trying to crucify the old man. Why? It's already done. God's taking care of it for you. You're a new creation in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. But listen, listen carefully. You're a new creation in Christ, but you're not perfect. Not yet. Not yet. One day we will be. But nonetheless, we are a new creation in Christ. One commentator says this, the old man is the unregenerate man. The new man is the regenerate man. You are one new man. The old man ceased to exist. So salvation, justification, this is very important. It's very important doctrine to understand. And I know it's kind of tough and I thank you for your patience. But when you are saved, when you are justified, when you are made right with God, when you are born again, it causes a radical change in the nature of the person. And everyone who is radically saved here today can go around and testify. Yeah, when I got saved, there was a change in my life. It wasn't something I had to manufacture. It wasn't something I had to wait for. Immediately, I knew, wow, what, what's going on here? Maybe your relatives said, well, what happened to him? Why is he on this high horse about the Bible and boy, he's trying to save the world? What's going on with him? Now, granted, we may not have all the wisdom we need when we come to Christ. So we do a lot of things that tick people off and turn people off. And, and granted, but that's all under God's grace anyway. So it's all good. I'd take one immature Christian who's on fire for God than some old mature saint who hasn't witnessed somebody in years. Because they're too afraid to offend somebody. When someone comes along and they're living in the same old relationship to sin. Under that same old dominion. That same tyranny of sin with the same old lifestyle. I don't care what they're claiming they are. The fact is, is that there hasn't been any radical transformation. There hasn't been any change. As I've said before, no change, no Jesus. No Jesus, no change. It's a very substantial, fundamental truth that you have to wrap your mind around. The old man, the sin nature is dead. And the new holy 
nature, the new holy man, is born. We're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. Who is our life? Colossians 3, 4. So when Paul says our old man was crucified with him, he means that what we were before we were saved died with Christ. There's a complete severance of the reign of sin in our life. Our old life ended. In Christ, our old man was crucified. Think of it this way, positionally. It's a spiritual fact. Remember I said we're going to deal with a spiritual fact today. We're not necessarily into the practical yet. Because I know in your mind you're going, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. You know, I know that there's places in Paul where Paul says, well, I want to do this, but I can't do it. Well, who's he fighting with? We're going to talk about all that. Just, just be patient. But this is that we were crucified positionally with Christ. It's a spiritual fact. Just as the fact that we are raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly position. That's a a positional truth. To say the old man was crucified is is really a, a, a kind of a neat way of saying that positionally its power is broken. For the first time in our lives, we don't have to sin. Do you understand that? I mean, that's what makes it so unfortunate when you have Christians who are claiming the name of Christ and they're living in open sin with no repentance thinking that somehow God's grace is just going to cover everything. Well, obviously the power of sin isn't broken in their life. They're still doing the same thing they did before they came to Christ. What's going on there? We have to practically apply this truth on a daily basis as we battle against sin and temptation. And then he gets to the the point here. We've got a few minutes left here. In verse 6, where he says, In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. King James says that the body of sin might be destroyed, I think. What does it mean the body of sin might be destroyed or brought to nothing? Does it mean when you became a Christian, the body of sin was destroyed? That's what it says. I don't know about you, but before I was a Christian, I didn't even know what sin was. In the spiritual sense. I really didn't. I, mean, I knew, you know, I did bad things once in a while, whatever. But I didn't understand the theological understanding, the spiritual understanding of what sin was. Now that I'm sin, now that I'm saved, it seems like all as I see is sin. You have a hypersensitivity to sin. You know, when you sin, your heart grieves. Why? Because you know it grieves the heart of God. Before I was a Christian, I could go do what we call sin, and I, I wouldn't feel anything. I mean, yeah, you know, if you lie to somebody, you know that's wrong, and, you know, the, the, the morality there. But there are some sins that pretty much was approved by my family to do. I mean, I guarantee you probably if I was a teenager in my family and I, and I wanted to drink alcohol, I don't think anybody would have said anything. Matter of fact, I remember many times throwing a football in the front yard, 
humidity of Pennsylvania in the midsummer, August, whatever, hot, sticky. My brother having a, a, a bottle of, uh, it's either Blue Ribbon, whatever, I forget the name of the beer, but this, this beer that he would have in his hand and it would be ice cold. And I remember after throwing the ball around, we're all sweaty and stuff. And he'd say, here, have it. Oh, yeah, sure. What do you think of it? It wasn't like, oh, my gosh, he's giving his little brother, who's not even 21, alcohol. Not, not even an issue. It was only by God's grace that I didn't end up becoming an alcoholic. Because it runs clearly in my family. So what does he mean here? What does he mean when he says this body of sin must be destroyed. Now that I'm saved, all I can see is sin. I mean, does he mean here you're supposed to be perfect? Is that what he means? The body of sin is gone, so now you just live a perfect life? Is this called sinless perfection? I don't think he's talking about that. Paul conceives of sin as being associated with the body. If you look at verse 8, of Romans, and we'll get there eventually. Verse eight, verse ten, uh, chapter eight, verse ten. Excuse me, chapter eight, verse ten of Romans. He says, "But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, oh, the spirit of life because of righteousness." Look down at verse eleven. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your what? Mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So in chapter 8, he's definitely talking about a mortal body, a physical body. He connects it somehow with sin. In verse 13, a little further down, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In verse 23, he continues and he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of what? Our bodies. In other words, we have to face the fact that as long as we're in this body, we're going to have an issue with sin. As long as we're in this world, we're going to have an issue with sin. So the body is somehow connected with sin, and that's what Paul is trying to explain to us. The expression here, the body of sin, is referring to our humanness. That's what it's referring to. Under the absolute control of sin. It's apparently in the genitive of possession. It means a person's body before salvation is totally and utterly in the possession of the sinful nature. So you've got the old man controlling the body. And by body, I don't think we're necessarily talking about the physical body here. We're not like the aesthetics who think, oh, this body is evil, so we have to beat it and we have to, you know, whip it and do all that. That's not what he's saying. If our bodies were evil, why would God put his Holy Spirit within it? 
Why would he call it the temple of the Holy Spirit? Our union with Christ's death, because of that, the body of the believer is no longer in the possession of sin, no longer controlled and conditioned and solely dominated by sin. That's what he's trying to say. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says this, Don't you know that your temple is... Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have of God. You are not of your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. And he's talking there about fornication in the text. And he says, look, your body is not any longer under the dominion of sin. It is not any longer conditioned and under the authority of sin. You can now yield to the Spirit because you're a new person in Christ. That's so important to grasp. It's so important to understand. It's the same thing that Paul is talking about even over in Romans chapter 12 where he says that we're to present, what? Our bodies as a living sacrifice. Why would God tell us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice if our bodies were innately evil? They're not innately evil. They're God's creation. They're to be used for His glory, our pleasure. There's, there's a lot of ways that the body is, is, is a, a, a vessel that can glorify God. So we need to be reminded of this truth. So we have to identify totally with Christ in, his, in the likeness of his resurrection. Um, to know and understand that. And next week, we're going to speak about that. But please understand today, I want you to understand, if you're struggling with sin, you're not the only one. You're not the only one. The mere fact that you're struggling with sin is an indication that somehow the Spirit of God is convicting you of that sin. And as a result, He's asking you to confess that sin and to come back to the understanding that you are a new person in Christ, that you don't have to do what you did before. God gives us that supernatural ability to override the power of sin in our lives. I mean, what a glorious thing. I mean, think if Jesus just died and said, okay, now all your sins are forgiven up to this point. (laughs) But from now on, man, it's up to you. Let's see what happens. We wouldn't last one day. None of us would. But because of his grace, because of his love for us, he wants us to understand if you're claiming Christ, if you're saying, I am, I am new in Christ, I've been born again, I was saved, there better be a line of demarcation between this life and your old life. If you can't point out a line of demarcation, then I would go back and say, as the Bible says, to make sure that you're in the faith. Because if there's no change, there's no what? There's no Jesus. No Jesus, no change. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.